Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. Hello, Lynn. Hey, Dan. Long time no chat. I know, I know. We took a summer break, a, a siesta over summer, but now we are back. We are back. 2021. Still feels like 2022, not going to lie. Still working from home. You, not, not 2022, but 2020 as well. Is what is that what you meant by two? Oh, are we actually still in 2021? I had clearly been very optimistic and had projected myself into the future. Now, for those who are new around here, this is the greatest moral podcast of our generation. It's a monthly long form chat with leaders on climate action from around the world. It appears right here on the Irrational Fear feed. And this week, I'm very excited about this conversation, Lynn. You haven't heard it so yet. So am I. Oh, you haven't heard it yet, but I, I, I can't wait for you to hear it. Um, it is with mega energy, climate nerd, technology brain, Katan Joshi. Uh, and he is like my favorite person about climate and the environment and technology on Twitter. Do you follow him? I do follow him. And I reckon when people ask me the question of, oh, how should I engage on climate? I'm always like, so there's this guy on Twitter. <laughs> this is his like handle. You should definitely follow him. Sometimes he tweets about Norway because he lives there now, but like 90% of the time, climate and like good stuff. But first, Lynn, I guess we should get the climate news out of the way. I'm recording my end of the greatest moral podcast of our generation on Gadigal land in the Yora Nation. What, whose land are you on? Lynn? On the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the show. Despite global warming, a rational fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders. Good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our generation. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goombug. For short. All right, let's get stuck into the climate news for the last couple of months, I guess. There's been a hell of a lot of it. Um, let's just 
do some highlights recently, I reckon. Despite everything, the federal government, you know, supporting gas, supporting fossil fuels, it looks like they can't even do that properly. I don't know if you've seen this piece by Reuters. It's a great scathing opinion piece, basically saying Australia's energy policy is in such disarray. Uh, while they are trying to support fossil fuels and are completely negging on renewables, they haven't even managed to support fossil fuels enough to keep Exxon from closing their oil refinery in Altona in Melbourne. In 2020, there were nine oil refineries in Australia, but now there's only two for the whole country. <laughs> uh, COVID really did impact clearly a whole bunch of different sectors. And it's so funny, right, because we definitely see the Australian government as one of the biggest supporters of fossil fuels all around the world, to the point where the European Parliament is about to vote on something soon to punish polluters, i.e. people like Australia. So, you know, we're being punished for it internationally. But back home, still not doing a good job. And, and that's incredible. And you know who's next after the EU? Apparently Japan is going to import, is going to be doing some uh, climate tariff work as well. But of course, there's a bit more of a tension there because Japan is a much bigger trading partner with Australia than, than the EU is. But still, to have the EU implement tariffs and then Japan implement tariffs and Kerry is now talking about implementing tariffs from the United States. So all of our biggest trading partners are going to be punishing us for not acting on climate. We're so wedged in that we're not even quite in a corner anymore. We're not even really in the picture in the game. You've essentially got the four biggest economies in the world saying, hey, hey, we're going to do stuff on climate. Businesses that operate here are going to respond. What are you doing, Australia? You may remember around this time last year, there was going to be talk about a gas-powered recovery from COVID and things like that. Well, let me tell you, the uh, AEMO, the organisation that basically is the industry body for running the energy in Australia, ran a workshop with a whole bunch of stakeholders floating how the gas part, the gas uh, led recovery is going to work. And it turns out that uh, half of the stakeholders uh, described it as completely not useful, <laughs> which is extraordinary to see. So, you know, this it's so interesting to see how the government has come through and said, we want to do this gas powered recovery, um, but the industry is like, nah, that's a really shit idea. We're not going to do any of that. <laughs> well, when your normal friends aren't even willing to back you, right, I reckon you can't keep calling them your friends anymore. And we definitely are seeing it. Some of the biggest owners of fossil fuels, so like AGL and whatnot, some of the financiers, yeah. like none of them want to touch any of these projects. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like two-thirds of the participants in the AEMO said that they would prefer to do uh, make Australia a hydrogen superpower. And that's pretty exciting to know that the industry is like more buoyant about climate action than the government is. Yep. The Australian federal government has more than one pickle to deal with at the moment, hey. So maybe they're slowly going to be so wedged in that they're going to have to start responding. Was that a pun, Lynn? Were you talking about... <laughs> You're talking about a certain kind of pickle? Just a small one. Okay, Just a small great. one. Excellent. Last month at the National Press Club, the PM actually stated a preference for a movement to a 2050 target. Insiders the next week, Catherine Murphy said that she totally believes that ScoMo would love a net zero by 2050 target, but and he would totally sign the Liberals up if it weren't for the National Party. Apparently, Canavan and Joyce are holding him back. And it's so strange to see, like, if the Liberals and the Coalition take those people away from um, from their party and they do sign up to a net zero 50 target, then that would almost be more progressive on climate than Labor. And it's, so it's kind of, a, it's this strange games like Labor doesn't want to show their cards and be aggressive on climate because they'll get attacked by the coalition. But the coalition deep down have only got like three or four troublemakers that are holding the rest of the party ransom. 
Again, you'd think that as Prime Minister of Australia, you might be able to do something on climate, but it's clear that this, like, coalition that they've got going on, is it still a coalition? It just feels like strange bedfellows at this moment in time. Uh, I don't know if you saw this story. Uh, Air New Zealand's chief environment advisor has said that we need to up the ticket prices for Air New Zealand flights to prevent tourists from coming to New Zealand. (laughs) When I first saw the headline, I couldn't tell if it was some sort of nimbyism and some sort of, look, we've like sorted out COVID, no one come here. But then I read the details. I was like, oh, interesting. It's actually a really good step, I think. And it it helps embed some of the learnings that we've had over COVID, right? That travelling is a privilege, not a right. And if it's a privilege, how do we actually pay for it when most of the world never get to fly anywhere? I mean, it's pretty interesting that you have this chief environment advisor for New Zealand. And the the full quote is, controversial though it may be, I'm in favour of putting off some people from coming to New Zealand. I just don't believe the idea that the number of international visitors to New Zealand can grow and grow and grow without limits. I just don't believe that it's credible or right. So if a higher price for the privilege of flying to New Zealand puts some people off good i reckon that makes sense because you know what if travel is now all about experiences and all of that sort of stuff the more rare and precious you can make something like the more people want to be instagramming about it so if there's not a million instagram photos from new zealand but only a couple of hundred thousand they're just going to get far more traction i'm all for this idea and lynn brisbane might have some stiff competition for the 32 olympic summer games That's right. And I'm pretty keen to head to Finland, not just for Santa Claus, but also the coldest town in Finland, a pretty cold country, is keen to host the 2032, not Winter Olympics, but Summer Olympics, because, you know, climate change is heating the world up. Here's a little taste of their bid video. Warm hot, we have it. Warm place, coming soon. What a great video. I mean, uh, they did show volleyball, beach volleyball being played in the snow. Do you think they'll be ready in time to get rid of that snow for the 2032 Olympics? (laughs) pretty optimistic. What's the difference between snow and sand? You know, small little particles. I can see a future where if we don't tackle climate action, Finland, they're going to be the hosts of the next Olympics. Um, you know, it's really interesting. Um, at a ra- rational Fear, we made a sketch, uh, what, t- 2014? Remember when Sochi held- You're ahead of the times. <laughs> Do you remember when Sochi held- the uh, Winter Olympics and they ran out of snow in Russia. Yes. Uh, yep. And they were like import, they like were stockpiling snow for, for weeks before and they, and they were trying to make snow but they couldn't kind of get <laughs> enough snow. Uh, anyway, so we at Irrational Fear we made a, a video for Queensland holding the 2038 nuclear winter games. <laughs> You are basically a prophet. Uh, the International Olympic Commission should bring you on board as a staff member. They should do away with their voting system and just have you predict where all of the Olympics will be held in the future. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play the video sketch at the end of the interview with Katan Joshi. So you'll, you'll hear it in the podcast, but also I'll add the link in the show notes so you can watch it later. Right now, though, I'm going to play you my conversation with Katan Joshi. You're listening to the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Our next guest on the greatest moral podcast of our generation is one of the most gifted science communicators that we have in Australian media. Catan's writing is funny, sad, and it cuts through with clarity. He doesn't mince words and he never misses his targets, of which there are many, and I hope we get to talk about all of his targets on this podcast. It's Catan Joshi. Hello, Catan. Thanks for joining us on the greatest moral podcast of our generation. Hi, hi, Dan. It's good to be here. Um, yes, we will just list all of my enemies one by one. <laughs> Let's start off with... <laughs> who are we starting off with? That's a hard one. Um, it, do you want to talk about what I've been reading about over the past few days? Sure, yeah. What have you been reading about? Um, 
I've been reading about Bitcoin. Um, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you brought this up because I want to <laughs> ask you questions about NFTs and how artists yeah. are going to ultimately destroy the earth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, do you want? For your listeners, do you want like a, a rundown of what the basics of this whole thing are? Yes, please. This is one of the this yeah. is one of the topics I wanted to pick your brain about because uh, <laughs> let me just let me just kind of flag with you. Yeah. I have been dabbling in NFTs. I've been trying to buy mm. artworks from Australian comedians. Uh, yeah, and I've lost about <laughs> two hundred bucks plugging money into Ethereum wallets <laughs> and then trying to get those Ethereum wallets to connect with platforms to buy NFTs, and it just hasn't worked. But I've been thinking about. Um, as a, I don't know if you realize this, Katan, but when you've got a podcast mm. about climate change, it's not incredibly profitable. So I've been <laughs> trying to figure out ways to take the sketches we do in a rational fear and monetize them with NFTs at the same time, fully realizing the irony that I could be making things worse for the planet. So please yes. enlighten me as to what the hell is going on <laughs> with NFTs and intellectual property and how that's intersects with climate change. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so um, there's a lot of uh, like, this is actually a little bit like climate change in that there's people try and explain it through, through analogies and metaphors. I'm going to try and avoid that because, you know, it get you kind of, you just end up swimming around in like, you know, mixed metaphors and it's very confusing and scary. Basically the way I've always understood. So I, so just a bit of background, I used to work um, at the CSIRO specifically in their data science part of the, of the business called data 61. So we did, we actually did a bit of stuff on blockchain um, technology and it's various uses. And it's described as a distributed ledger, which is basically imagine you've got an Excel spreadsheet on your computer. Um, imagine that that spreadsheet replicates across a thousand, a hundred thousand computers at the same time. So if you put the word, poo into a cell in your Excel spreadsheet, that word poo appears in 100,000 other copies instantaneously, right? Oh, so it's just like Twitter. Great. <laughs> yeah. That is distributed ledger. Uh, so it is it is a pretty fancy way of doing a spreadsheet. And because it's, a copy of it is replicated across so many things, then if one person makes a change to it, then it's sort of copied across. So that means there's a high level of trust in this. There's no single authority that you sort of have to rely on. Now, Bitcoin sort of operates on similar technology, right? You have this distributed ledger, but what you do is they've taken that technology and tried to make a currency out of it. That means you have to have something, uh, some challenge to get value from this currency. You can't just kind of randomly distribute imaginary um, tokens of, of currency. Yeah. So what they came up with is, uh, well, what we'll do is create a process that is incredibly hard. And by making it so difficult, what happens is it takes some amount of work to acquire one of these coins, a Bitcoin, and it's called proof of work. That's the name of the, that's the, name of the technology. And the best way I've seen it described is imagine if keeping your car idling 24-7 um, <laughs> solved imaginary Sudokus that you can exchange for heroin. <laughs> um, I thought you said you were going to get into metaphors, want... um, but that is a <laughs> yeah. very accurate metaphor. I enjoy that. It is my one allowed metaphor, <laughs> and I'm going to spend it on that one, on that tweet, because it was fantastic. <laughs> so basically, to win the Bitcoin, you have to generate as many random numbers as you possibly can. It takes a lot of computational power. Mm. And that amount of computational power uh, increases because you need to actually have 
a balance between who is winning this currency, who's winning these tokens, and the amount of computational power that's in the system, which means the system actually adapts as you get more and more computational power, which means basically bring it all together. It takes more and more energy to get the next coin. Yeah. And so what you end up with is the situation in, you know, all of the sort of technology aside, you end up with this reality of you have these vast, vast quantities of server farms sitting there just like buzzing with noise and heat, just spinning out as many random numbers as they possibly can Mm. to get as much of this currency as they can. So it's called mining. They call it Bitcoin mining. Mm. And so when you see things like, Bitcoin consumes as much energy as this particular country, it's because it does. <laughs> like yeah. it takes that much literal physical electrical power to run these computers to generate these transactions. Every time new coins are discovered, it takes even more power to get to the next coin, right? A, a bit more, yes. Yeah. And so all of these dynamics, I'm simplifying I'm simplifying all of these dynamics very, very heavily. But the basic consequence is that by design, proof of work and Bitcoin requires a lot of energy. So if you want to change that, if you want to change it from requiring a huge amount of energy to requiring not much energy, you need to change the design. And actually, there are people working on this, right? So there are different ways you can prove, um, you can introduce difficulty without having the difficulty being that you just consume ludicrous quantities of energy, right? You can have other forms of difficulty, right? There's different types of these things called proof of stake, for instance. So how many Bitcoins does someone already have in their virtual wallet or something like that, right? Reading into these, there's actually some hope, essentially, (laughs) that you can have these things not consuming world-melting amounts of energy. (laughs) So what you're saying is that we could possibly fund this podcast by selling bits of it uh, (laughs) and also not destroy the earth at the same time. Yeah, so so it just that brings it back to what you were describing earlier, which has been described as like crypto art or non-fungible tokens or NFTs, very inaccessible names. Basically, it's generating a serial number for a unique piece of work. Mm. So it can be a tweet or it can be a piece of art or whatever. Um, and that serial number is stored on a blockchain, right? Which means it's it's on that spreadsheet that's replicating across a trillion billion different computers, which means when as soon as you generate it, you put you put the serial number, you put this tweet is owned by Katan Joshi. He paid a hundred bucks for it. <laughs> it's this sort of very highly trustable system, right? Which is, which is pretty good, right? Like this is something that is obviously of a lot of value to artists is to have yeah. a more discreet, like almost like copyrightable sense of ownership for the art that they create. Particularly in the digital space where you create something and it goes up and you hope it goes viral, but there's no monetary gain from yeah. anything. Going, speaking as someone who has gone viral so many times, if I had one <laughs> cent for every time I've gone viral, I would absolutely be able to buy a new car. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is what people have been trying to do with like, you know, when you see a viral tweet on Twitter and below it, someone's written like, you know, here's my SoundCloud or whatever, or like, please send me some cash. Like they'll put their co.fee link there and say, can you please just help fund my, you know, getting through university or whatever. Katan, I don't know if you realize you are, um, you are just uh, outlining my business plan. So that's exactly what we do (laughs) on Irrational Fear. (laughs) We will, (laughs) we will go viral. Usually this is, this is no, this is no secret to Rational Fear listeners, but we'll create a sketch, put it up on Twitter and I will write who made this. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> put it up on Twitter, and then I'll write underneath, yeah. I made this, subscribe to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, of course, right. Um, so this is a real source of frustration. And um, like Bitcoin, it raises this fundamental question. And it's not it's not limited to, to Bitcoin. It's actually something that the whole energy and climate world is facing mm. um, right at this moment, which is basically, is this worth it? Is yeah. what we're doing worth it? So is the value that you get uh, from copywriting and paying for a piece of art worth the X number of kilowatt hours that was required to process this transaction? And, and crypto art operates on a slightly different system to Bitcoin. It has the same fundamental sort of proof of work system, but it's slightly more efficient because you're not playing this random number game. It's actually... It's actually going through this process where a whole bunch of different transactions get bundled bundled together. Mm. It's still relatively high consuming, right? Like it's still a relative uh, decent amount of energy. And I was just looking at this one uh, chart this morning from this website called Digiconomist. And they look at the power consumption for the thing that runs crypto on NFTs, which is called Ethereum. Yeah. And it's it's still pretty high. You know, it's not quite as high as Bitcoin, Um but, uh, you know, it, like that, there are still sort of some options for bringing that down. Yeah. But fundamentally, there is still this really, like, almost really hard to solve problem uh, underneath it all, which is that uh, it requires a lot of energy. And of course, the problem with consuming a lot of energy is that we live in a fossil fuel world, pre- yeah. predominantly fossil fuel world. Yeah. And to consume a lot of energy, you just have to consume a lot of fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, I've seen so many countless numbers of Vice documentaries about warehouses in China and and all just mm. like crammed with AMD risk chips that are all like yep. mining Bitcoin. Um, and there's like dudes with their shirts off, like plugging like plugging <laughs> cables <laughs> here and there. And then, then there's yeah. on the other side in, in rich countries like Iceland, you see these, um, these stories about um, Bitcoin factories that are built in Iceland in really cold areas to use the natural cooling of of the of the environment to 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 mine bitcoin and using geothermal mm. uh, technology to kind of power these um, these bitcoin mining factories but it's such a it's it's such a head fuck like you're just like you know you you think one thing's going to save um, the planet but it ends up just completely destroying it <laughs> this this is this is why this is why I kind of got sucked into it a bit because there's actually nothing really like it. Um, there's nothing where the ratio between how much energy it consumes and to be honest, it doesn't really seem to have clear societal benefits, right? Yeah, so, and you know, you've, you've got all these, or you've got all these like uh, uh, blockchain edge lords who are talking about how, oh, you know, we're only at zero zero point three percent of what we've explored with blockchain. I think it's going to yeah. have exponential growth. I'm like, well, that's so much more energy. That doesn't if, seem good. What? what <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem good at yeah. all. Yeah. Well, it's actually worth mentioning the the renewable versus fossil energy thing because um, something you hear a lot is basically uh, that Bitcoin miners will hunt out the cheapest and most surplus energy, right? So, um, of course, you know, renewable energy has gotten a lot cheaper over the past decade, uh, wind and solar in particular. But uh, what we're actually seeing is that there isn't surplus wind and solar. Um, Mm -hmm. Wind and solar are being deployed in very carefully managed ways around the world uh, such that they do what they're meant to do, which is displace fossil fuels. 
instead of just sort of filling this like rising addition of Bitcoin mining demand um, <laughs> and then leaving the fossil fuel system as it is. Like that's not a good thing. That's not a good outcome. Yeah. <laughs> and so what they're actually drawn to is hydro in particular. And in China, um, what you find is that there are hydro assets that aren't particularly well interconnected into other parts of China, which means they have potential output if so, reservoirs that are sort of like full, yeah. that they could never, they could never really sat. That could, that is way more than local demand, right? And, and so the logic of Bitcoin miners is well, we kind of just you know we like flow into those into those bits of surplus and consume that. So you know it's like it's not really changing the situation at all, and it's not quite how that manifests in the real world. Yeah, because what is happening is that every part of the renewable energy world that is like stranded or surplus. Uh, what we're finding is that we actually need to connect it up to the world to start displacing fossil fuels. I mean, China is a particularly great example of where there's a lot of coal happening. So those renewable assets need to be going towards displacing fossil fuels. So if they're stranded, that's not a good thing. And to lock them into being stranded by saying, we'll give you a revenue stream from your surplus from, from mining Bitcoin, uh, is basically diverting that <laughs> action to link it all together to start pushing down on fossil fuels. Yeah, uh, That's not a good thing. And then on top of that, um, <laughs> there's this whole push uh, within uh, the Bitcoin mining community to actually specifically use fossil fuels. So to actively and consciously seek out fossil fuel mining operations, so, so oil and gas, and to say, well, you guys through the process of extracting oil and gas from the ground, you get this thing where methane leaks from these sites, right? right. So um, it, I, I, what they do is either they just let it let methane seep into the atmosphere, which is extremely yep. bad, um, or they burn it off, which yeah. is slightly less bad. This is all in the process of extracting fossil fuels, which eventually get burned. What, yep. what is their logic in actively seeking out fossil fuels in that case? So, so what they're saying is like, well... Because all of this waste product, all of this waste methane uh -huh, yeah. from these mining sites will either be released or burned, we may as well just burn burn that waste to mine Bitcoin, right? So, <laughs> okay, so right. you can find you can see these videos, and it's oh not God. a secret. You know, they're very sort of open about it. You see these videos of like these shipping containers at oil and gas fields, mm. um, and they'll just slowly pan the camera around from like you know, the sort of classic like oil drilling thing, you know, it's got like the big weight on one end uh -huh, yeah. and they'll pan, they'll pan around from that oil drilling thing to this shipping container that's buzzing, you know, like, uh, like it's full of hornets and it's full of like LED lights and uh, it's a little server farm that's mining Bitcoin mm. because they're taking the gas, but they're still burning gas. And yeah. when you burn gas, it creates, it creates greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so, the net impact of what they're doing is it's either nothing or it's worse because when you look at the websites of these companies, they're like, look, we're actually doing this to help the optics of the fossil fuel industry. The venting and flaring problem of yeah. methane at these sites has been under, has been the subject of criticism for a long time mm. in, you know, Biden's administration in the U S is like, we have to crack down on all these like waste methane issues at these sites so the Bitcoin miners come in and they're like, don't worry about the waste methane issues. You <laughs> so, just burn, you can just burn the fossil fuel to mine Bitcoin and it's actually an environmental benefit. Has so anyone has any, is anyone <laughs> seriously trading off that though? Is anyone seriously 
putting that in a press release saying that, you know, hey, you know, we're the, we're the do-gooding oil company that's flaring off our methane to mine Bitcoin. Not, <laughs> yeah, it's not just the companies that are sort of, you know, offering this as a pathway, but like the oil, the, like these massive giants like Equinor. Um, so, you know, uh, Equinor being um, the state-owned oil company here in Norway where I live, mm. um, they they have been investing in this because they're like, look, <laughs> we're actually, we're actually solving the problem. Of, um, I never thought, like I never thought I'd say this, but I can, <laughs> I, next year I, I well, heading up to the election. I can, I can just see Scott Morrison saying, we're going to have a Bitcoin led <laughs> recovery, a blockchain led recovery. Oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, actually, you know, there actually are some Australian guys. I saw a tweet yesterday of like, <laughs> Another another Norwegian oil and gas company announced their um, intention to sort of invest in um, Bitcoin, not not specifically using methane to generate it, but to just to, they they're taking the cash that they have and just investing in Bitcoin, mm. and with some weird promises about using stranded renewable energy assets, but no clarity on what they mean. Yeah. Um, and someone you know someone tweeted at like all the Australian oil and gas companies like Woodside and AGL and Origin being like, "Hey guys." why aren't you doing this? <laughs> like, this is a great idea. Right. So, so to, to bring it all together, yep. basically what I've been, been finding out is that first of all, it consumes a lot of energy. I think people sort of know this, like they've seen it in articles, yep. they've, you know, they've read about all the comparisons. That's not a mystery, but with Bitcoin mining in particular, there seems to be this like energy pushing them towards fossil fuels. And it's because what they are drawn towards is not, zero emissions power, they are drawn towards cheap stranded power and oil and gas mining operations actually fit that bill really nicely. Mm. Demand for fossil fuels is going to decrease very significantly. And so if these Bitcoin miners step up and say, well, don't worry about all the you know, people not wanting your fossil fuels will take them. The price of those fossil fuels will drop very significantly due to the, due to the fall in demand. Yeah. And they will probably be there to be like, well, don't worry about your coal mine, your gas mine, your oil extraction thing. We'll just take that energy that you're extracting and use it to mine Bitcoin. And they can kind of say, well, you know, they'll sort of like frame it in this like tortured logic of um, we're, we're actually doing an environmental benefit. But really, they're monetizing the, uh, this sort of side, this like waste stream from the fossil fuel industry. Mm. So anyway... I've written a, a, a sort of very long <laughs> um, post about this because I think it's actually a very nice summary of a relatively important debate that we're all having, which is like, how do we manage energy? You know, do we live in like a high energy world, a low energy world? Who gets it? How do we connect up renewable energy? Um, how do we figure out what to do with fossil fuel companies? Like, do we congratulate them if they're doing something that sounds vaguely like it's environmentally beneficial or do we remain critical of them? All these questions are really big and important. I'll publish that piece uh, probably later this week. I'm not sure when this podcast will go out, but um, if anyone wants to <laughs> read a three to 4,000 word um, <laughs> rant from me about this... I don't know why you would want to, then, yeah, it's, it's it'll be published soon. Will I be able to buy it on OpenSea.io as a nifty? That's, <laughs> that's the question. Yeah, I mean, um, 
the crypto art thing as well is is an interesting cultural comparison because Bitcoin is just full of libertarians, and, yeah. you know, plenty of whom are not particularly um, environmentally types. Oh, right, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, well, yeah, and also, you know, uh, also not particularly. Uh, n- open-minded towards like collective climate action and like government regulation, (laughs) fossil fuel companies and things like that. But then like the art community is very, very different, you know, like it's really, um, of course, it's a lot of environmentally conscious people, people who you would, you sort of think are are a lot more uh, into like climate action and environmental justice and things like that. And of course you see a very different reaction now. You see um, a lot of backlash from within the uh, arts community against uh, the sort of like, um, I guess the excesses uh, of this, but then there's also a lot of people who are like, well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because if we can really bring the energy consumption down, the concept is really sound and really beneficial for a lot of people who would like to get paid for the stuff that they're doing. Mm. So there is some work, you know, to try and rescue, I guess, you know, to try and cleave it away from the Bitcoin libertarian world and into this like basically like a useful technological tool uh, to help artists get paid. I think that's where that's where I am right now as a creator, like thinking mm. like, you know, how how do we use this to get paid, but how do we also not uh, not destroy the earth at the same time? I think it's really interesting that um, you kind of mentioned <laughs> that that uh, the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry, are using Bitcoin as a delay tactic, considering they are the kings of delay tactics. And your your book <laughs> in your book Windfall, it's just um, it's just like four hundred pages of delay tactics. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think I think that's um I think one of the one of the things I love about your writing, um, Katan, is um is just how clear it is and how often you return back to first principles all the time. I, I really appreciate that. Like I think you, whenever you talk about coal, you kind of talk about it, how it's just sunlight trapped in a rock or you're always talking about climate change, about how the government is slowly trying to kill its citizens. And uh, <laughs> one of my favourite motifs is, is an idea how you, you kind of return to again and again and again about how it's just a handful of powerful individuals that are responsible for the position that we're in. And mm. one, I think one of the, my, my favourite sentences in the book is about how when you're articulating Australia's lost decade of climate action and you said it was squashed under the boot of a callous few lazily protecting their own manufactured realities. <laughs> it's such a – when you, when you kind of write like that and it, when you return back to first principles – the obfuscation kind of floats away and you're kind of left with this bare naked truth as to kind of the position we're in and the absurdity that the Australian government is in, is in in particular. What have you learned by moving to Oslo and looking back at Australia? Yeah, this is, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently because what is happening this year is this global environment, this like sort of global climate meeting in November called COP26, Conference of Parties. It was meant to be the, the it's the sort of the five year check in, um, and it was meant to be last year in twenty twenty. Obviously, delayed due to COVID nineteen. Um, it may not even happen this year if um, uh, if the uh, vaccination stuff goes slowly. So that means that the whole world kind of stands up in at their podiums and says, "Well, this is where we're at with climate change." And so that means Australia also stands up and says. This is where we're at. We're checking in. Um, it's been five years, um, well, six years since um, the Paris, Paris Climate Agreement, Agreement yeah. started. And that means the sort of trapped 
world that every country has been living in, you know, looking at their own climate politics. Well, are you trying um, to say every country has their own version of the Canberra bubble? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Uh, this is something else that's actually become very clear is that uh, as I have ex- exited Australia's time zone, it's actually pretty tough to get people to think about different countries when they're when they're really sort of into their own um, into their own particular area. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe I think maybe America might be the worst offender of this because they sort of um, there's a lot of things that happen in there that they treat as like the first time that it's ever happened. And I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 the world. Many of these things have happened elsewhere. Yeah, um, uh, the metric system. The metric system is the big one there. I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but what what Australia is going to ha- is is finding out uh, this year, and what will what we're only at the very start of, and will become more intense as the year goes on, uh, is that a lot of things have become saturated, and because they're saturated, people get people lose their sensitivity to how bad and horrific the situation is. Mm. So to give you an example, um, in the UK, uh, in, in, in the past few weeks, there's this coal mine that was proposed. It's called Cumbria. And it's like this, on the scale of UK's coal mines, it's it's relatively big, right? Um, because coal mining in the UK has declined over the, over the past century mm. um, to almost nothing. There's a couple of really small ones and of course, coal-fired power generation in the UK has also declined to almost nothing. Um, it is functionally uh, no longer really playing a role on the grid in the UK. This coal mine has been proposed. It's an underground coal mine. I was looking at the discourse around it, and it's intense, right? Like there's the, the local council, the, the UK government, climate activists, investors, the debate on this one coal mine is just like this really, really large focus. And I was looking at it and I was like, hmm, gee, I wonder how that coal mine compares to like Australia's current <laughs> like list of planned coal mines. So not yeah. operational coal mines in Australia, but the ones that are sort of at various stages of like, you know, getting towards operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put it onto this chart, <laughs> which is basically looking at the number of megatons of output of coal per year from each coal mine. Will I need to get a, will I need to get a yeah. spew bag? Um, for the rest of the sentences, my question. <laughs> well, I'll try not to describe it too vividly, but basically it's like this tiny little red dot and like Australia's planned coal mines are several orders of magnitude greater. Mm. I found that really stunning, right? Because it's not like the level of outrage and emotion within Australia's leadership, um, within political circles is is equivalently larger than the level of outrage at this one tiny planned coal mine in the UK. And of course, like the reason is obvious, right? Is because that planned coal mine in the UK is new. Uh, it's a, it's it's like a new unfamiliar thing for UK people to go, oh my God, a coal mine? Are you kidding me? Like, why, why are we building a coal mine? That's bonkers. Like we're, you know, we're holding, we're hosting COP26 at the end of the year and you're building a damn coal mine. And then, you know, you look at Australia, you know, just to give one single example, there was this amazing, this is amazing court case being brought against the Australian federal government uh, on the grounds that expanding a coal mine, expanding a planned coal mine, and just the expansion of this coal mine dwarfs the magnitude of this <laughs> planned coal mine in the UK. <laughs> and, and like, 
that got some attention that this court case being brought by a group of teenagers, but it didn't get anywhere near the magnitude of attention that the Cumbria coal mine is getting in the UK. And it's saturation, right? Like it's just like this, you know, it's not like people don't care. It's just that if they were to care by the same order of magnitude, then they wouldn't be able to function as human beings, right? Like, like you just, you would be so overwhelmed by how much you should care mm. uh, about, <laughs> about like the production line of new coal in Australia. Yeah. And the other thing that's worth noting is that this production line of new coal extraction in Australia is globally very, very significant. There was this uh, report last year from the International Energy Agency that looked at the coal production in different countries. And they're like, look, there's a few countries in the world that are just going to be the engine of, of, of new coal production in coming years. And Australia is one of them. There's other countries are like um, Indonesia. Um, actually, Germany is up there as well um, because Germany really seems to be big on coal mining. There's a couple of others I can't quite recall uh, from the report. But Australia is a, basically a key player, mm. right? And um, Oh, and sorry, of course, uh, China. It, but China uses a lot of the coal that it produces, right? Mm. It's, not a, it's not a big net exporter. exporter. Australia is one of the, uh, the countries that actually supplies it to elsewhere in the world. So that is really the sort of the key thing that I felt looking back on Australia because... <laughs> It's this barrage, this daily barrage of new things that become. It obviously becomes extremely difficult to maintain outrage about um, because it's just so proportionally massive in Australia. Mm. And compared to other countries where, like the UK, for instance, where the horrific stuff still happens, but it happens more infrequently. Which, mean, which lets you have the emotional capacity to go, oh my God, a new coal mine, I'm pissed yeah. off about this. Mm. Whereas in Australia, you get this phenomenon where, like with coal mining, for instance, you kind of have to concentrate all of your feelings onto one symbolic example, um, like the Carmichael coal, Adani's coal mine uh, Adani, um, in yeah. Queensland. Yeah. yeah, it's like the only way you can emotionally manage because if you were to spread it equally across all the coal mines planned in Australia, you would never have the you would melt into a puddle the it's brain capacity too yeah much. yeah it's yeah. it's one of those things like to communicate it you need just like a very simple emoji and the stop adani thing really symbolizes <laughs> yeah. that and even though stop yeah. adani is actually stop everything happening in the galilee basin that's kind of yeah. <laughs> that's kind of and the galilee basin is filled with hundreds of coal coal companies all vying for the coal underneath underneath the galilee basin but, yeah but adani is the easy adani is like this adani is like this the signpost that we all rally behind and even when they change the name to Bravis um, we still use Stop Adani <laughs> because Stop Adani oh, no, is, the, I just, is the icon I that we got about up all to. of the wrong things that they've done in the past you know <laughs> I, just, I treat them as a completely new company <laughs> <laughs> so so that's basically why I write the way I do in a sense because I because I always want to um, uh, I want to try and describe things in a in a slightly different or, or literal way uh, we often rely on shorthand to talk about this topic because, of course, like it's just a, it's just a weird, new, complex, sciencey, you know, economic, like techno-political thing. Yeah. So if sometimes you just sort of re-describe what you're talking about in a slightly different way, then it just resets that emotional exhaustion. It almost makes it sound, you know, 
climate action and going carbon neutral sound completely achievable as well. Like I think one of the one of the things you constantly mention in your book is um is like you you re you return to again and again is saying that you know even if one molecule of CO two equivalent is stays in the ground that's great you know like and when you when you put it down when you put it as minutely as that you're like oh yeah shit yeah that's what this is all about it's about keeping the stuff in the ground that sort of links it back to renewable energy and my own advocacy of, of renewable energy because uh, we can confirm that you know grids are finite um like if you <laughs> if you have 100 people demanding electricity and then you know uh 50 of those people get it from wind and solar whereas they otherwise would have got it from coal and gas mm. then that's an emissions reduction we we can confirm that this oddly enough was actually almost controversial last decade like this is something <laughs> you know wind and solar were kind of treated as like this sideshow of like oh you know they're there but they're generating so randomly that we don't really know whether they're, they're whether they're reducing emissions or not it's kind of strange like i feel like there's a couple of conversations happening at different levels of government in australia where that is still the case like in federal government mm. you have a whole bunch of right-wing conservatives who who kind of have that same that's still that same dialogue that same conversation mm. whereas a lot of other conservatives are kind of are kind of on the renewables train at a state level mm. and you kind of see the shift in mode in conversation the, the the meme if you will that renewables aren't, aren't reliable is kind of disappearing yeah i split it in the book i split it into three sort of categories right one is price one is um like grid security or reliability and the other is emissions and so it's just been this three-pronged fight to prove that like renewables can perform those three functions. And so in each of those three, the balance of discourse has been in exactly the wrong direction. So like <laughs> you had this, like you, I'm sure, you know, uh, your listeners will recognize this is like whole decade of like renewables are too expensive yeah. that no one can afford them. And of course, what we, what we're discovering now is that the majority of price falls in electricity prices in Australia are due, due to, to the renewables. Of renewable energy. Yeah. yeah. It won't last forever, of course, but it's, it's actually, it's pretty damn good that that's happening. The next thing has been grid reliability. You know, South Australia had its blackout and then suddenly everyone was like, oh, see, you know, uh, wind and solar cause blackouts. And now we're realizing that's strong too. This one, um, this was really fascinating in your book. You spent a lot of time dissecting the 2016 blackout in South Australia. Why mm. did you just spend, why did you decide to spend so many pages dissecting, uh, what was it, five seconds of, of, grid, <laughs> yeah. of grid problems in South uh, Australia? My long-suffering editor actually um, convinced me to to pare that down. The book actually would have been um, <laughs> substantially longer. Oh, it could too, uh, could I, I say as a reader, I really enjoyed it, and it, <laughs> it might have been my favorite part of the book. <laughs> yeah, because because it was the it, it's it's actually my favorite. No, sorry, it's my second favorite part of the book. My favorite part is the community energy part, which maybe we can come to later. Yeah, the mismatch between reality and discourse there was the greatest, I think. And it has had the most noticeable impacts on the way uh, energy policy happens in Australia. Um, so back then, back in like sort of 2016, 2017, it, the narrative was like, if you build more wind and solar, it's going to cause blackouts. I promise you it's going to cause blackouts. What was happening is that a lot of wind and solar was being built because it was incentivized under the renewable energy target. Yeah. And blackouts... Uh, grid stress were increasing because climate change is happening and heat waves are becoming more intense and longer. Um, bushfires are impacting parts of electricity infrastructure like um, transmission lines. 
and that means there's more more stress on the grid and coal coal and gas fired power stations are getting older and less uh, they're becoming more susceptible rather to uh, moments of grid stress so all these moments were like heat waves that are just blatantly um, worsened or intensified by climate change uh, causing coal and gas plants to basically shut down or power lines to, to get wrecked. Those were all blamed on, on wind and solar because they were like, well, do you, do you see our hypothesis has been proved? Like we told right. you that the presence of wind and solar would cause all these problems. This has actually changed somewhat since then. What we're going to see now is over the next few years in Australia, it's going to shift away from a narrative about renewables and towards the closure of uh, coal and gas-fired power stations, right? Um, it, it, it will initially be mostly about coal because there's this phenomenon that is about to happen uh, in Australia's grids where coal simply loses its profit- profitability. Wind and solar are so cheap mm. as a fundamental of the way they operate in that you don't have to extract the fuel that they use. You, you get it from the atmosphere and um, space. Then coal simply can't compete because it, it's more expensive. You need, to, you need to dig all out of the ground and transport it. This is without a carbon tax, you know, <laughs> um, without, any, you know, without any form of carbon pricing essentially in Australia at all. So uh, this, this is something that's going to accelerate. And what is going to happen is that these companies that operate these, these, these power stations will say, this is really bad. All of our coal-fired power stations are going to blip offline and it's going to cause chaos. There's going to be blackouts. There's going to be price rises because renewables, wind and solar will not be able to pick up the slack. Um, so it's sort of an extension of that of that debate from like sort of the mid-2015s onward mm. that wind and solar can't provide reliable power. But it's going to be, it's not going to be used as a reason to attack wind and solar. It's going to be used as a justification for keeping coal plants running longer. For, and that means- For subsidies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This is my prediction. Um, I, I think that this is the way it's going to go over the next like one or two years. And you're already sort of starting to see some signs of it. Like as in what, what, we, what we know for absolute sure is that Australia will not align to ambitious, strong climate targets unless it shut down, shuts down its coal-fired power plants before they're set to retire. Mm. Because every coal plant has it has a date on it that it's like it, that it retires, and you can put those dates into a spreadsheet and say if they run to that date, what are the emissions? And then you can say what emissions do we need to be under to align with climate <laughs> targets? And of course, letting those coal plants run <laughs> to their end date means we blow past our carbon, uh, we, we emit way more than we should mm. uh, if you were to sort of assign a 1.5 degree global target mm. um, to Australia. So there's just no, there's absolutely no escaping that math. And think back to last year where a coal-fired power station in New South Wales called Liddell, a relatively big one, is due to close in 2022 for very, very close, right? Like this is this is right around the corner. Mm. Um, the reaction from the government was initially, we have to keep this open. We need to extend its lifespan for another five years. That did not go down particularly well <laughs> because the, even the owners were like, oh, I don't think we can do that. <laughs> um, it was just <laughs> a, a quantity of government money that would have been required. It was, it was beyond the pale even for them. So then they said, look, what we think is that the, the owner of that coal-fired power station should be forced to sell it to someone who will agree to keep it open. Australia's government like toyed around with that idea for a while. It didn't work. And the latest 
that we saw was Scott Morrison and Angus Taylor standing up in front of the cameras and saying, listen up, energy market, you have been very naughty. (laughs) This coal plant is due to shut down very soon. And we feel that the replacement capacity hasn't been put in place. So we are th- so we are threatening to build a 1000 megawatt gas-fired power station as a punishment because you've been so naughty and you haven't built <laughs> you haven't replaced the capacity of this coal-fired power station that we're going to build another fossil fuel power station to replace it as punishment. So you could so what I, the reason is, I bring this up is, is because so the gas the gas power yeah. recovery is blackmail yes. to keep the coal industry going. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Uh, look, it's confusing. Uh, I can't quite follow <laughs> the logic of the gas fired recovery. Um, <laughs> but essentially, essentially, the, okay, so the reason I bring this up is it's actually a really nice example of how the the absolute key debate, this is really extremely central to Australia's entire climate issue, is shutting down coal-fired power stations before they're meant to retire. When a coal plant plant reaches its retirement date, the government can't even handle it shutting down when it's (laughs) meant to. It, it sounds it sounds like the government is so <laughs> sick like a, a, absolutely sick like it's they've yes. got a, they've got an this, illness this is, yeah so so this is what I this is what, it kind of links back to what I mean when I say like saturation right because such a such a bad situation of like they can't even handle the absolute baseline basic starting point of this issue. To, to control emissions to, to where they need to be controlled to, that you look at the way it's covered stuff like this and people, it's like almost like people just don't want to, and when I say people, sorry, I mean, I mean you know, I guess like uh, the bulk of like coverage in like News Corp and like large media outlets, you know, they sort of almost can't deal with how bad the situation is. Um, they sort of like cover it like, yeah, Angus Taylor stood up and suggested a 1,000 megawatt gas-fired power station. Environmental groups criticised it. Yeah, next one, let's move on. Yeah. And it's like, if you can imagine the, I guess, like, try and sort of relate it back to COVID-19 and the tone of, like, emergency, <laughs> not not just from Australian citizens, but from media outlets too. You know, they sort of really, there was this air of, like, this is an actual emergency mm. and it needs to be treated as such you know, bad decisions were criticised as as such, you know, they, they, like it didn't really matter that people would be seen as being too biased in favour of saving lives from the impacts of COVID-19. They did it anyway because they felt as journalists, you know, it was their sort of duty to um, serve the public interest and criticise bad policy decisions uh, on the grounds of protecting the lives of people vulnerable to the impacts of this disease the very same logic of like, well, the government ought to be criticised on the grounds that they're allowing the emissions of this substance, which causes harm to human life, uh, doesn't really come into play. And it's frustrating. Uh, Another good example is actually um, the next biggest sector of Australia's emissions is transport. Australia, you know, it's just a lot of cars, a lot of big cars, um, not, not as much public transport as there could be in the big cities, not as much active transport like walking and cycling as there could be in the big cities. And consequently, um, Australia has very high um, transport emissions, mm. even relative to the population. The 
upside is that um, decarbonizing transport is just as much is just as feasible as power, right? Like we we have the technology, you know, bicycles, like e-bikes, <laughs> public transport, um, electric vehicles, electric buses, all these sorts of things. Um, long distance transport as well. There's a lot of different options available. Um, Australia could start now very easily on decarbonizing transport. And a few months ago, this long awaited plan came out from Australia's government. Um, and it was just this huge struggle. They're just like, we're not going to bother. Uh, like we're just going <laughs> to, um, electric vehicles will probably eventually get cheaper, right? That's, that's completely inarguable. And they're sort of looking at that. They're sort of holding that and going, Hey, look, you know, electric vehicles are going to get cheaper. So why is everyone panicking? And of course yeah. the reason that we're panicking is that you need to put some force into the system yeah. to make it go quicker. To make it go quicker. Cause we're um, running out of time. And I, yes. I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that kind of attitude that I saw on Twitter from a lot of conservatives like, see, we don't need to help the sector. The sector's going <laughs> to sort itself out. And then, of course, two years ago when there was an election going on, you had Michaelia Cash going, tradies are going to ha- lose their utes and lose their weekends if Labor has its way. It's such a peculiar, fucked up argument um, that it, it just makes my head hurt so bad. Uh, it, it, and it's incredibly frustrating to see that some states, um, treasurers like in South Australia and in New South Wales, are even considering putting a tax on on EVs. Like, why would you yeah. want to put an economic uh, disincentive <laughs> to buy an EV at this juncture? It, this is a very sort of um, salient problem to me because you know I live in Oslo in Norway, and <laughs> Norway has you know easily leads the world in the deployment of um, electric vehicles. But it's actually really interesting when you dig into the policy mechanisms that have used, right? So it's this really fine balance between at the very start, you have relatively strong incentives for EVs, but you actually need to need to go through this process as EVs start filtering into the fleet of private vehicles in a country. You actually then need to kind of flick it the other way around a little bit and start to rebalance uh, the level of like taxation. So things like um, the, there was this great um, interview with the head of the Norwegian Electric Vehicle Association where um, she talks about the fact that, of course, every single thing that people do has some impact on society. So even using a private vehicle, even if it's electric, you know, uh, that has, you need to use a road uh, to do that. There's infrastructure that must be maintained. Mm. Um, you pay a toll when you use a certain road, tires emit particulates, that sort of thing. Mm. But there's also benefits relative to a combustion engine vehicle. Of course, there's um, no air pollution. There's no greenhouse gas emissions. It's quieter. There's less air pollution, all that sort of stuff. So you need to then have this balancing act of like, don't let EVs be entirely excluded because there are some impacts from usage of a private vehicle or, or, you know, most other activities, of course, that humanity that that like people do in cities as well. Mm. And what has happened in those states in Australia is they've just mucked up the order quite badly. Um, so they've started. They've started with the strict, like you know, uh, they started with a disincentive, and then they're like, "We'll get to the, we'll get to the step one after we've done step six. Oh like, really so, yeah. and it's like, no, that's gonna. Of course, that decreases the deployment of electric vehicles. I interviewed the head of the Norwegian EV Association about this, and and they're like. You just you kind of see like the the look on their face. They're sort of like <laughs> squinting at you. Like um, uh, they're like, "Why are you doing this in precisely the wrong order?" <laughs> like, that's crazy. <laughs> so you are a prolific tweeter, and I, your tweets are some of the most enjoyable tweets 
particularly around energy and environment. Um, <laughs> probably, you. I would say, the best <laughs> Twitter person to follow if if you want if you're into environment stuff. Um, one of my favorite tweets was you publishing a story from the Australian. It was like about a KPMG report, and you said consequences of mining now considered major threat to mining. Says say miners, <laughs> and for me. <laughs> That was probably the most underrated tweet of 2020 and um, should have should have got far more tweets than the 43 retweets it got. I don't know when you hit tweet, did you think <laughs> did you think this is definitely going to be a 43-hour or this is definitely going to hit 500? Like what, what, what was going through your mind when you hit tweet, when you hit tweet on that one? I never, I can never tell the, my, often my crappiest tweets end up the most popular and, and my best ones end up the least appreciated. And one of my, yeah. and I think I, I kind of made a connection today is like, that was some data pulled together by KPMG, which made me think about today's big energy news story about the federal government spending $9 million on consultants to work out how best to subsidize the gas industry. And those consultants weren't KPMG. <laughs> <laughs> and I just yes. thought, oh, well, uh, clearly um, Boston Consulting Group is happy to come up with different kinds of information for the government. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually, um, I, I, I intend to write about this one, write about this one too, uh, because it's a really, really fascinating story. And it's great work from the Australia Institute for, for you know, um, having that scoop and in, in sort of getting those documents. But um my writing is split into two halves at the moment. One is, one is you know, sort of renewables focus, like um, grid energy technology stuff. And the other half is actually critique, fossil fuel industry critique, um, and also like in general sort of climate plan critique. Because what we're seeing a lot of is, is um, not just fossil fuel companies, but um, many other companies uh, sensing the change in the wind and going, oh, okay, well, we need to come up with a climate plan. Mm. What do we do? You know, like, do we, um, we need to reduce our emissions from our company, you know, whatever the company is. Um, and you've got this whole spectrum of like really, really good ones where people very, you know, very consciously recognize their, their environmental footprint. Um, uh, actually a good example of a good one is Google. Um, surprisingly enough, um, I fully expected them to go for full, you know, greenwashing crappy you mm. know, <laughs> plans, but they've got a fantastic plan where they, where they match, they actually turn their data centers into demand matching for renewables. So it actually helps ease the integration of renewable energy. Mm. So a uh, bad one um, is an, actually um, uh, there was a really good article last year. I can't find it um, because I needed to <laughs> write my thing, um, but it examined Boston Consulting group's own net zero plan um, and what they um, and they have this you know with every one of these net zero plans what happens is you get this really sort of like flashy uh, media thing where mm. it's like look you look you know here's another one uh, here's another company you know um, showing that they're sort of caring about climate change and often these are actually really good signals um, these net zero plans um, so they do they do do some good in that everyone's kind of watching this happen and they're going like, oh, fantastic. You know, now we, now we need to do it. But then the next step after everyone kind of agrees that we all need to do this is to dig into the details of that plan and say, well, actually you need to improve this particular thing. And Boston Consulting Group do this really interesting thing in their net zero plan where they don't really change the number of flights that their consultants take <laughs> very much. They kind of just fill it in with offsets, right? So this is either like planting trees or having a technology that sucks carbon carbon um, from the air. Those are the kind of the two types of offsets. They call them natural or technological um, offsets. There's a lot of controversy around both. With, with the tree stuff, um, obviously, you need to actually have something that removes carbon permanently. Obviously, we got it from the ground. We got it from deep underground. And if yeah. you kind of just have it on the surface in a tree or in the soil, Very unstable. it can get re-released back into the atmosphere. Yeah. There's also some controversy around, you know, there's a lot of projects that are sort of sold as like, 
we're building this, we're planting this tree specifically because you paid us to do it. But of course that tree may have been planted anyway. Um, so it's not additional. There's no additionality is the word. Mm. Carbon removal has a lot more hope going for it, but it's it's a long way off. Um, and mm. then often the promise of carbon removal just gets used as like, you know, no, no, we'll just continue burning fossil fuels because we reckon in like 2049, yeah. someone will just have this amazing technology that'll just suck all the carbon out that we've spent 29 years releasing. It's like um, the, the same, the same, the same kind of false promise of carbon capture storage. Just like you know, exactly, yeah. You know, we've got these two, we've got these two plants, and we think they're working, but we're not quite sure. But they don't really work. But we'll just say we've got them. So it means we don't have to do anything for another 15 years. Yeah, and I often, I often produce these charts with like, yeah, here's how much they've released, and here's how much they've captured, and it's just like a ridiculous, <laughs> tiny, you know, Spec, barely yeah. visible. You've got to like squint at your laptop or phone. So, so BCG offset their um, flights. You know, sure. instead of saying we're going to figure out a way to fly less, they just said they just coloured it in with trees, and they're like, nah, we'll just continue, we'll largely continue doing what we're doing, but we'll just have, we'll just plant more trees and mm. it's like okay that's actually that's actually not a particularly great thing to do because it's not reducing the amount of carbon that's being added to the atmosphere the planting of trees is probably a good thing it, it, it certainly helps but then uh you can't have that as as the thing that you're relying on you actually need to reduce your emissions as well yeah um so bcg were on my radar last year and then um there are a lot of companies that work as enabling for the fossil fuel industry without actually being specifically <laughs> digging up fossil fuels themselves. Um, of course, the other category is like public relations, like marketing, advertising, things like that. Well, I was going to say, can, can, could, could BCG possibly lower their carbon emissions by not working for the Australian government and working out how to burn more for fossil fuels? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not captured in their annual report. Like you won't see, uh, here's a list of our clients, you know, here's ExxonMobil, here's the Australian government, blah, blah, blah. Like you won't see that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of actually really good groups. Um, there's one in Australia called Comms Declare. There's another one as well. I, I've completely forgotten the name. Um, but basically what they We're do- We're part of another one called uh, Podcast Declare as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen, I've seen that Twitter account. Yeah, it's good. I mean, like this is basically, this is really important stuff because I think to some degree we underestimate the impact of particularly advertising, you know, like consultancies obviously play a pretty big role in this sort of stuff. Like you can see the impact there with BCG and the Australian government, but yeah. marketing and advertising is going to become a much, much bigger thing as decarbonization moves from like grid stuff, like, you know, huge wind and solar farms out in, in rural areas and into our homes. So like cars, you know, the type of stove top that you have mm. decisions that you make around like where you put your money, you know, do you, like which super, which super fund do you put your money in that sort of thing. All of this is, is actually becoming way more individual. And so marketing, and um, mass communication are going to be really, really big things this decade. The I was just tweeting this morning about the gas industry. They they really um, don't want people building new homes without connections to the gas network. <laughs> the more people choose not to connect their new home to gas, the less value their infrastructure has, and it's freaking them out because you know induction cooktops work amazingly well. You don't fill your ho home with fossil fuel particles. Like you don't, you're not burning a fossil fuel inside your damn home. You're not and, putting methane uh, <laughs> in your home where you live. There's an interesting side issue around equity, of course. Like um, I've been a lifelong renter. You and I are yeah. similar in similar positions where like, you know, it'd be all well and good to be able to do renovations to the place we live, to have an induction yeah. stovetop, to have electricity 
beaming from our roofs to our homes and and doing yeah. all these wonder and having a having a Tesla in the driveway. First of all, I've got to get a driveway. And yeah, I don't have a <laughs> And so like to to kind of do all these things when you're when you actually don't have the power to do any of that yourself if you're not a homeowner. That's yeah. a very another a different game to play. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, as a consumer myself, I try to make choices that are uh, that are thoughtful, like I carbon offset my car, even though I, mm. I'm, even though I'm totally aware of the the nature of carbon offset, it still makes me feel good. <laughs> so. No, it's, it's certainly something that you should do. I mean, like as long as they're as long as they're like high quality, you know, as long as they're verified, and that you are in a situation where you can't afford to purchase an electric car, or you know, you you live in a certain spot where you can't live your life without, um, like it's not feasible for you to walk or. or catch, you know, use a bicycle, catch public transport. Um, and in Australia, of course, there are many, many, many instances of where that's the case for most people. Then I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with deciding to, to try and do some other action. It doesn't, it doesn't even have to be an offset. You know, you can like fund like a community solar organization, or, you know, you can, you can purchase green power for your electricity. Like there's a bunch of different things that you can do that don't have to be a one-for-one emissions cancelling thing that um, really help a lot. This is actually a really important point because um, the debate between individual action and like systemic regulatory action on climate change really rebounds between these two things and people just get caught up in this rebound, right? Where they're just like getting buffeted around like, oh my God, I feel bad for not doing too much, you know, personally <laughs> in my life. But, oh no, no, I don't feel bad at all because it's the corporations, you know, that should be doing it. Oh no, no I, I feel bad again. Oh my God. Like don't let yourself be emotionally battered around by this by this constantly shifting focus, right? Because no, as you say, um, as you say, you should yeah. feel good for doing something good. You should feel good because you didn't put molecules in the air. That, so that's, yes, that's good. exactly yeah. right. So so the, actually, the gas industry is a really good example of this because there's a, there's a dimension, right? There's a spectrum where we actually get more room to make the to make emissions lower emissions decisions in our life because of regulation, right? So the example I often use is uh, I live here in Oslo. I I cycle my kid to childcare, um, but I only do that because somebody fought to get bike lanes installed. Mm. And this is actually a really recent phenomenon in Oslo. It's only in the past few years that bike lanes have become ubiquitous in the city. And if they weren't there, I would not be doing this. It freaks me out. I would probably be driving a car. And if I didn't have the option to drive an electric car, I'd probably be driving a fossil fuel car Mm. um, because I need to get my kid to childcare. (laughs) And so it's the, I've made a decision. Like I could still drive a fossil fuel car if I wanted to. But the reason that I've made the decision, this lifestyle change is because somebody fought in Oslo's council to get this like option available to me Mm. with the gas industry as well. They are looking at marketing and advertising campaigns to get people to have gas in their homes because it will impact regulation because they want like a body of people out there who will stand up and say, I like my steak when it's cooked by fossil fuels. Mm. um, And I don't like my steak when it's cooked by electricity from those wimpy wind farms. And like, they need that there to be able to say, well, um, I want this state government to introduce a policy where they're not going to allow the banning of gas connections, for instance. And this is happening in the US. Mm. Entire states are creating these things called ban bans, um, (laughs) which is basically, yeah, yeah, this is wild. So they're banning the banning of gas connections. That's such an American thing. That's such an American thing. Yeah. And a similar thing is actually happening with plastics. Uh, So, 
there are preemptive bans of plastic bag bans mm. where they say you're not allowed to stop people from using plastic bags, single-use single use, uh, plastic bags, because that's too much of a, of a, you know, it's impinging on the freedom of whatever. It really, you know, of course, it's there to produce the, pe- to, to, to um, protect the petrochemical industry producing yeah. the raw materials for those plastic bags, yeah. right? But um, it's, a, it's, it's a growing trend and they need, and they need widespread public support um, because these are all really local issues now, particularly with gas network stuff, they're going to be really local issues. Yeah. So they need people to be like having warm feeling towards their warm feelings towards gas and gas connections. And you can tell I've obviously been doing a lot of reading and writing about, <laughs> about the gas industry. Um, but, but it feels kind of relevant, you know, because Australia is doing its whole gas recovery thing. About a year ago, the, ga- the gas industry were putting together events with influencers to make people feel good about gas. So they had these wellness <laughs> influencers doing yoga and meditating next to a gas-fired fireplace where they were breathing in methane and particulate matter uh, <laughs> in the sake of wellness to kind of sell gas to yeah. a whole bunch of your Pete Evans types. They cited some studies where they said that looking at a flame creates psychological wellness uh, and therefore (laughs) you should be putting gas in your home. I'll give you another example that some, you know, sort of within COVID because it's sort of relevant. Uh, Last year in America, this council in California was looking to implement a ban on new gas connections and the, the gas lobby in this area threatened to bus in protesters and sent a message saying, if you go ahead with this, what we will do is bus in protesters to protest your, your attempt to ban gas connections. <laughs> and that, that is going to spread COVID-19 in your... In, so they specifically used... Weaponized um, COVID-19. A, a respiratory disease <laughs> as a threat to force people to have the option of, of having another respiratory illness <laughs> from having gas burning inside your home with inadequate ventilation. Uh, so, <sighs> like, you can tell why I've been so obsessed with this particular, like, you know, phenomenon around the world because the gas industry is starting to get pretty dirty about this stuff, right? Yeah. Like, they're getting really... They, they, they're doing like, do you remember sort of like the old coal PR stuff from like the 2010s, you know, where they would do like ads, you know, with a lump of coal spinning in like, you know, bright light and that sort of stuff. And yeah, like yeah. They would do, they would have to do all these like, you know, filthy AstroTurf things and get like, you know, dodgy operators to come in and do PR stuff. Like all that sort of coal stuff from the 2010s, the, ga- the gas industry is starting to kind of do a bit of, um, that's a really significant thing. I think we can actually prepare ourselves a bit for it by uh, knowing how all of these things are going to go and kind of knowing how they operate. And that's why I write about that stuff so much because I want to be like, look, we know we can actually predict very uh, reliably what's going to happen here. And so watch out for it and don't fall prey to the to the lines of reasoning that they'll, they'll be using. Yeah, we actually made a parody on Irrational Fear of... Um the little black rock, I think it was going to call. It was called. It was like, oh, yeah. it was oh, like is, this yeah. magical black rock is saves lives <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. Uh, let me play that parody for you now. Hang on, here we go. 
This can provide endless kinds of environmental destruction. It'll create carbon emissions, respiratory disease, and more waterfront land than ever before, delivering more than 50 million people the motivation to move from their countries to ours. It creates jobs for thousands of machines built by people all over the world. Due to falling demand, it's the cheapest it's been in over a decade, but consequences of using it will still look expensive. Because if we use it as fast as we can, our world will look just like this little black rock. Whatever is good for humanity, this shit is the opposite. There you go. That was uh, that was from twenty fifth <laughs> September seven, twenty fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, will. We'll, I'm certain we'll get a you know long, slow uh, focus on a gas bottle. You know. <laughs> 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 yeah. No. The well. The wellness. The influencer stuff is the is the modern version of that of the little black rock. I think it's going to be the steak. It's going to be cookie the steak. That'll be that'll be mm. the one that gets people. There's actually a few. Um, there's a few partnerships that the gas industry does with. I think it's like um, some cooking shows in Australia. Is it MasterChef? I can't remember which ones, but they do like um, they get like you know the chefs from those shows to be like, um, oh no, I, I always cook with fossil fuels. I mean, you know, it makes sense. MasterChef's MasterChef setup um, is all gas stoves. I've noticed them and lusted over them. So it's one of those things where it's like, wow, look, <laughs> look at that, look at that naan bread being like Amazing just completely story. blown up on that gas stove. It's really incredible. I, I should really let you go because, you know, you're a busy man with the world to save and I'm not. Um, but I do have questions from a couple of my Patreon supporters. Um, Susan hmm. from Patreon asks, what are your thoughts about the most likely power sources for the aviation industry over the next 50 years? Yeah, this is actually uh, one of the, this is really one of the toughest areas um, to sort of talk and think about with with climate action because, uh, it's another one of those areas where you have to think about the potential of technology, not not like what we what it currently is, mm. um, because there is just no alternative to jet fuel for get, for transporting people across oceans, across land. Obviously, you can tr- people can travel along the ground um, in a high speed train or a car or whatever, but across oceans, ships can't really do it. The electric ships are really. Um, Actually progressing a little faster than I thought. There's a few really great um, electric ferries here in, in Norway um, that can actually do surprisingly large distances already. Um, but, it, you know, it takes a lot of um, resources and materials to make the batteries for, for those things. I saw Maersk um, yeah. was going to stop building fossil fuel powered ships in, 19, in 2030, I think. There's some good stuff going on actually around there. There's hydrogen. Um, hydrogen is um, produced from uh, a bunch of different. You can make hydrogen from a bunch of different things, but you can make it from electricity, mm. um, which you can generate from renewables. And when you burn hydrogen, it burns cleanly. It just produces water. Um, so it's actually a pretty pretty good option. But you just need to develop the technology to, to make engines that run on hydrogen. And it's an option for planes as well. But the challenge for both batteries and hydrogen is is um, basically energy storage for planes. Mm. Uh, is that they're both pretty heavy and they're both <laughs> <laughs> hydrogen is volatile. So you need to have, you need to have the technology to store it in a plane safely. Um, batteries are far heavier. So you need to have um, the balance between the weight of the plane and the weight of the battery. What we could do um, is we could get happen? everyone to charge their phones before going on a plane and then plug it into the plane and then <laughs> the passengers can use their energy. Mm, <laughs> it may not last very long, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I guess it really just makes sense that um, transporting people through the air requires a pretty wild amount of energy. 
what is more likely to be the best pathway for aviation is um, keep going with all that technology, keep developing it, but cut off the excess of usage. And so a lot of that is actually business travel. Mm. A huge, huge proportion of total flights around the world, I think it's like 30 to 40%, I can't quite remember the exact number, I need to check it, um, is from business travel. I was really grateful uh, two weeks ago I had to do a presentation in Canberra and I was quite thankful I didn't have to go and I could do it over Zoom to seven important people in Canberra and I could just do it from my bedroom where I am right now. And I was like, well, you know, the only thing I've got to do is put on a tie and I'm ready to go. And, you know, I think we've all learnt in COVID times that that telecommuting and, and, you know, stuff like video conferencing can replace a lot of that unnecessary travel. Absolutely. And the other problem, of course, is, is uh, frequent flying. So it's people who, people who fly way more than you and I would ever fly. Mm. And that is also a pretty large proportion. And the problem here, of course, is that airlines understand that this is a very large proportion of their revenue is people who fly when they don't really need to or really, you know, like not, this isn't, you know, stuff when they're going on holidays, it's stuff. So this kind of overlaps with the business yeah. thing of like, you know, a crazy consulting group when I have a have a meeting and they just fly their people, you know, from New York to Los Angeles to have that meeting. Yeah. Um, and maybe instead of having a gold and platinum, they should have like um, brown level. You know, you've, yeah, you've gone from should. gold to brown. Yeah. 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 This, <laughs> this is actually, this is actually a sort of proposal is, is to have like an incentive program for infrequent, <laughs> infrequent flies um, or, a, or at the very least idea. get rid of marketing and incentives for mm-hmm. flying essentially, which, which will cut off a very large amount of demand. And of course, that would be a politically fraught thing mm. um, down the line. Um, the airlines would not be very happy with this particular approach, particularly not now. One of our Discord community members, Ads, writes, um, uh, you write a lot about technology, replacing coal plants with wind and solar and phasing out uh, IC engines in favour of electric. This leads to two questions. Will this happen uh, quickly enough? And even if they get all replaced with renewables slash electric inside of 15 years, is it enough? Or do we need larger systemic changes? I don't think that's good. I don't think it's a quick question. <laughs> yeah, um, quick, I'll give you a quick answer though. I mean, you need systemic changes to reach that rate of change. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you need to have systems in place that are intervening in um, what may have previously been thought of as like relatively free markets. So it actually goes links back very nicely to the coal closure thing because mm. the owner of a coal plant won't shut it down early unless you force them to. Yep. And to get that 15-year time frame, uh, that's actually going to be uh, a really, a really tough, systemic, deep change to make. <laughs> so the other side of it, of course, is that um, simple replacement isn't sufficient. Mm. You actually need to push down on the demand side of the equation too. Um, so uh, that's, I mentioned active transport and public transport before. It's actually a really nice example of where you need to reduce the demand for the usage of vehicles. So people own a car, but they don't use it as much as they normally would. Mm. That is also a climate win, right? So this is actually a really uh, tricky thing to sort of wrap your head around because we often conflate um machines existing and the use of machines. Um, China, for instance, is actually building uh, a fair few new coal-fired power stations, but they're using them less and less. So obviously it's not, (laughs) they shouldn't be building new coal-fired power stations. That's extremely bad. But keep in mind that they also use them less and less because um, competition from renewables is increasing. Mm. Uh, P. McNeil on the Discord also writes, um, what does he think about direct technical intervention to reduce CO2? Uh, and he says, uh, technology solution, trees won't cut it, he says. Um, so, yeah, uh, the idea of reducing CO2 with a technological device, how far away is that, do you think? 
on the scale that we need, so there's, you've, got to, you've got to sort of split it out into two categories. One is getting rid of everything that's already been emitted and the other is dealing with stuff that we're about to or that we that we think we almost certainly will emit. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, so of course, if you ask a company like Shell, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not going to decarbonize very quickly. There's still a lot of emitting that we're going to do. But if you ask, if you look at a, if you look at an ambitious climate plan, there actually is still some emissions that are going to happen. So, mm. you know, I don't know, like a rescue helicopter filled with jet fuel that you need to save someone from hanging off a cliff will sure. have some carbon emissions that you want to, you want to remove. Yeah. So, uh, and then of course there's the historical emissions and there's a lot, you know, what are we up to um, last year, you know, 36 gigatons in that, in that single year mm. um, of uh, carbon dioxide. So not, not all greenhouse gases, just carbon dioxide. Mm. We, we currently uh, last year, we removed 0.04 ish. <laughs> Maybe missing a decimal point there. Um, but you get an idea of the proportions. It's like, I don't know why I'm laughing. Like uh, it's one of those things yeah, where it's, it's like, I shouldn't be laughing. I should be being very angry, but it is a sad laugh. Yeah. I think that's what a rational um, fear does. What, what, um, what I think is actually a really important argument in favour of carbon removal is is actually a justice question. So yep. the burden should be on those who have done the most emitting over the past century, and that's um, North America, um, that's Europe and Australia, uh, Oceania to some degree. All of the, these sort of three chunks of the world that have done a lot of historical emissions, so not the yearly amount, but mm-hmm. if you look at the atmosphere as a stock, as like a bucket of stuff, who's contributed the most to that bucket of existing stuff that's in the atmosphere. I think that's important. I think that's a justice question. And so it shouldn't be led by fossil fuel companies though. Do you think it'll get to a point where, you know, 50 years down the track, the global community will be saying, well, historically, the rich countries need to start mopping up their historical emissions and really Mm. paying for it. This kind of exporting, mass exporting of CO2 equivalent from countries like Australia, which we've built our riches on, Mm. uh, is suddenly going to be the biggest Achilles heel that we have politically in in the... in the world, yeah. The problem, the problem there is that Australia actually doesn't have particularly good um, carbon storage opportunities. Um, somewhere like Norway has actually has really good carbon storage opportunities just from sequestering it underground. There's a lot of sort of existing like oil sites offshore here in Norway, um, and so they're sort of trying to get ahead of the curve and, and offer it as a as a, as a um, you know business to say, well, pay us and we'll and we'll you know we'll take your ship full of captured carbon and store it underground. Mm. And there's two sides to that. One is the, one is the bad side, which is that um, fossil fuel companies may use that activity as justification for more emissions. And there's the good side, which is that we actually need to remove carbon from the atmosphere because for the same reason that we don't emit it (laughs) in that we need to reduce the stock of this substance in the atmosphere that, that traps heat on earth. So um, you've got to maintain both in your head at the same time. Same time. Yeah. In that, something good is going to be misused. It's going to be used as a delay tactic to, to keep the fossil fuels burning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's hard. <laughs> hey, Katan, thank you so much. Look, I, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. I've been a fan of yours for ages and um, it's really, uh, really great to thank get you. all nerdy with you. I think about two years ago, I went on a bit of a journey to try and learn as much as I can about this space um, from my very small kind of comedy point of view. Mm. And it's and you're one of the first 
people that um, people turn me on to and I haven't regretted following you on Twitter ever since. <laughs> I, I love your work. Um, I've, of course, I've been really enjoying the, um, particularly like the, of course, like the fossil fuel industry. When you skewer them um, through through that comedy work, it's really fantastic. And it just it just <laughs> fills me with not a lot of things filling me with joy these days. And um, <laughs> the, the sort of the, the, the dark humor of that is just fantastic to me. Um, it makes me feel really happy. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, without people like you, doing the hard work and writing the, the, the great work that you do, then I've got nothing to read to make jokes about. So thank you. <laughs> GM Poog. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Welcome to Brisbane, the capital of southern Queensland and bid city of the 2038 Nuclear Winter Games. Thanks to industrial growth at all costs, Queenslanders live life to the extreme and there's nothing more extreme than our weather. But every cyclone has a silver lining. Last year, Brady, Denise, Franz, Ian, Jackie, Philippa, Gertrude, Tiffany, Melinda, Cheryl, Rochelle and Dave nearly made space for new stadiums and sporting facilities and now we're ready for re-rebuilding again. With the southward spread of dengue fever, southeast Queensland now has the lowest rate of dengue fever in all of southeast Queensland. But don't worry, if you do catch it, some of the best-funded doctors in Australia are just over the border in New South Wales. Thanks to rising sea levels, in Brisbane, everyone shares waterfront views with some of the most ancient and deadly locals around. It's now even easier to take a boat to the Great Barrier Reef Memorial Oil Field. It's just been refurbished and moved into the habitable zone. Speaking of water, the water wars of 2025 are a thing of the past. We now have a roster. Clean water will be available to farmers Mondays and Tuesdays, coal seam gas miners Wednesdays and Thursdays, residents on Fridays and theme parks on Saturdays, Sundays and public holidays. But going wild can work up an appetite. Grab a bite to eat. Literally, just a bite. Queensland supermarkets now have round-the-clock military guard ensuring the orderly distribution of rations. And thanks to the Queensland government's banana buyback scheme, the cost of bananas is no longer bananas. You know what they say, Queensland, beautiful one day of the year. Authorised by the Campbell Newman Re-Education Facility. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.